about growing up in Minnesota, but I did, so I can't change that, so that's the way it is. And uh, that was a land of 10,000 lakes. So obviously, growing up, just about every one of our sentences in Minnesota started with something like, say, did you hear about the one that got away? Or how big it was? And all our stories were pretty much designed to outdo the last guy's story and tell even a bigger story. Uh, but there were limitations to that because we grew up in a Christian home and there came a point where dad says, you know, the difference between a good fish story and a lie, it's about that much. And that would temporarily put a stop to all those fishing stories. And that's a good thing. And that's the same dad who we could sit on, the, on his lap and he would read Bible stories. And he even read uh, a whale of a tale. And uh, unfortunately, at that point, it was just that. It was a story. Uh, he shared more about it, but that's where it started. So I'm used to stories all the way from Paul Bunyan and the Blue Ox up in Minnesota to uh, the one about the whale. In fact, all of us who grew up hearing Bible stories of kids as kids or started reading scripture later in life, we've all heard some whoppers. All of us have early on heard about uh, that tremendous rainfall way back when, and it covered the whole earth. And then we heard the story about Moses taking 600,000 men and all their families and go through the Red Sea and crossed it on dry ground and looking back and seeing the Pharaoh and all the host drowned in the Red Sea. And we also... Uh, Heard the one about a boy named David who took a little slingshot and rolled around. And it went right between the chink in the armor. And we heard about Daniel, of course. Or seen made-up pictures of Daniel standing with a whole bunch of hungry lions. And he comes out with not even a scratch on him. So uh, it's not surprising that we have heard stories. And some of them are big. Uh, those of you that have been hanging around the church for any amount of time have heard those. And so one more about Jonah is not going in a worm and a plant and a uh, vine. That whole story is not going to throw you much. The best part of this is that this is not a story. This is real. Deuteronomy 30 says, 32 says, these are not just idle words. This is your life. That's more than a story. That's true. What God actually said and did and how he used all these situations to demonstrate who he is and who we are and how he came to save us people from our sins. That's what it's about. But before we get into the book of Jonah, let's get a glimpse of the who and the when and the where. God has always had at his disposal men and women who, to whom he could say whatever he wanted to say and send wherever he wanted and when and why. And among all his children, he 
had a special group who were called prophets, those that he chose in a special way. Scott, who isn't here, did a great job in Hosea as he went through some of the prophets and how God used them. Some of them, like Elijah and Elisha, were verbal prophets. Most of the rest were writing prophets with the books of the Bible named after them. A few were major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Not that they were more important, but they were longer and dealt with a greater variety of subject matter. They were all used to teach different um, kings and nations. For example, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk all prophesied to the nation of Israel, as well as several other surrounding nations. Last week we heard Michael and Obadiah, uh, how Obadiah was a prophet to Edom. And Daniel and Ezekiel to Babylon, and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi prophesied to the remnant after their exile in Babylon. And now we find Jonah and Nahum were both used to prophesy to Nineveh. It's impressive how God takes a person here and here and here and here and says they got to hear there and they got to hear there and I, I, oh, I got to get the word out there. And that's what he does with the, those prophets. Which isn't a whole lot different than what he does with us on the streets. So don't forget that. Chapter 1 begins, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. In 2 Kings 14, we read of Jeroboam II being the king of Israel, and that he had a servant named Jonah, son of Amittai, who was the prophet from Gath-Hefer, a town in the tribe of Zebulun, three miles north of Nazareth. Jeroboam reigned in, in, uh, from 793 to 753 B.C. for 40 years, and there's records of two plagues in 765 and 759, as well as a solar eclipse in 763, which God probably used to get the Assyrians thinking. Uh, so most commentaries place him about 760 B.C. In terms of authorship, many commentaries have suggested that he was not the author since he was referred to in the third person, even though Moses, Isaiah, and Daniel also sometimes wrote of themselves in the third person. However, since all the book of Jonah was written this way, many believe it was written by a prophet other than Jonah soon after. As mentioned, Jeroboam II was on the throne in Israel at that time and was the most powerful king in the northern kingdom. During his reign, Israel was continuing to do well in terms of size and economy and prosperity and power, but desperately failing in godly obedience. Shortly after, we saw that Amos and Hosea were both sent to Israel, warning them of impending doom. A couple of weeks ago in Amos 5, uh, we read uh, that he had warned that God would send Israel into exile beyond Damascus, which was Assyria. Hosea 11 prophesies, will not Assyria rule over them because they first refused to repent? And sure enough, just as scripture had predicted, a mere 35 years after Amos' prophecy, God used Assyria to completely destroy 
the northern tribes of Israel. Israel, as well as the surrounding nations, are all well aware of not only Assyria's power, but more specifically of their violent nature and how they destroyed their enemies. They not only killed them with a sword, but they tortured them by pulling out their tongues and dragging them with large hooks in their mouth and in their noses and literally skinning them alive. Sin is sin, but these were indeed violent atrocities. I wasn't here at the time, but I've read about Quantrill's raid. And apparently, depends upon where you were born, there was give and take who was the nice guy and who was the bad guys. And uh, we find that out at the beginning of every basketball and football season, uh, who sits where. But that was a pulse beat probably going on with Jonah and Assyria. It was not buddy system. Jonah 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah did as the Lord commanded. You weren't listening. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Ironically, it was Jonah's very knowledge of God that caused him to sin and disobey. That's sad. But we're kind of getting ahead of the story. The story of Jonah is actually a misnomer. It's not a story about a man named Jonah or a giant sea monster or even a vine or a worm or the wind. It's a revelation of how a holy God redeems an unholy people. Some days, some ways it's like reading Leviticus all over again. That was the whole purpose, is how does a holy God deal with an unholy people? Yeah, the story does play throughout all the, those people and plants and animals, but let's not forget who created them and his power to use each of them as he saw fit. To keep this in perspective, we're going to go back to our go-to, Genesis 12. Here we find God telling another key person in biblical history to go somewhere, a long distance for a very specific purpose that only God knew about the details. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to a land that I will show you. The only difference between him and Jonah is that Jonah knew about the land and the people. Abram didn't. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse whoever curses you. I will curse and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Very early on, God had already tipped his hand as he had explicitly said in Genesis 12. And he continues in Isaiah 49. I will make you a light for the Gentiles. 2 Peter 3, the Lord is patient with you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. And then one you've heard a couple of times before, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And we see in Acts 1, verse 8, after the Spirit has come upon you, 
you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth. It just continues. And here in the book of Jonah, we find God demonstrating that same heart of compassion, eventually getting to Nineveh, the very capital of the wicked Assyrians. This time, he just decided to use Jonah as his messenger. The book of Jonah was a reminder to Israel of her missionary purpose. God's love for the Gentiles was supposed to be seen, accepted, and lived out by God's elect and covenant nation and people of Redemption Hill. This book certainly demonstrates the contrast between Jonah's symbolizing Israel's disobedience and wicked Nineveh's eventual repentance. First of all, a couple of facts about the characters and locations in this book. The whale. Scripture never actually called it a whale. That's our terminology. In chapter 1, 17, it says, The Lord provided a great fish. The Hebrew word for fish is dog and refers to a great sea monster. Some researchers believe it was a mammal, a sperm whale, or a whale shark. Then a note about the actual city of Nineveh. It was located on the east bank of the Tigris River, about 450 miles upstream from where the Garden of Eden was believed to have been, at the juncture of the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Back in Genesis 10, we read of Noah and his son Ham, his son Cush, and his son Nimrod, who was a great warrior. Verse 11, one of his first kingdoms was Assyria, where he built Nineveh. Nineveh is eventually destroyed by the Babylonians in 612 B.C. That was only seven years before the captivity of the, the Judah began to Babylon. Now this was not an off-the-cuff suggestion, but a command. Verse 3 says, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Incidentally, Nineveh was 550 miles to the north and east. Tarsus was 2,500 miles west. I don't know if there was something actually in Tarsus that drew Jonah there or if it was simply a long, long way in the opposite direction. It took a certain amount of fear of Nineveh or a not very well thought out brazenness in Jonah's part to decide to act so quickly. Actually, verse 3 says, he boarded the ship in Joppa, paid the fare, and sailed for Tarshish to plea from the Lord. He'd have to go a lot further than Tarshish to get away from the Lord. So let's watch and see how this plays out between Jonah and his God. Jonah was doing just fine in that he apparently had sufficient cash to get on the boat, but he apparently didn't think it through very much about who controlled the waves on the sea. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Score. God won, Jonah won. But now there's more involved, the sailors. And don't forget their small gods, with obviously very poor results in terms of storm lessening. Next move. Throw the cargo overboard. Still no better results. Apparently Jonah thought that with a tie score, he might as well go down below and take a nap. 
catch some shut-eye. The captain, minus his cargo by this time, wakes Jonah and asks what he thought was a pertinent question. How can you sleep? And then Holly suggests that Jonah get up and call on his God, since apparently the captain's God had also taken a nap with Jonah. How ironic that a pagan ship captain had to call on a man of God to prayer. The captain, who had obviously chosen his own gods, which didn't seem to change the situation, was open for a complete change in divine resources. Anything might work. Since these Phoenician sailors had such a variety of totally unreliable gods, they could never be sure which god might respond, if indeed any would. Verse 6 says, maybe he will take note of us and we won't perish. Desperation was mounting and the number of participating parties was expanding. What had started out simply with the command of God, then insert Jonah, then the captain, and now include the ship crew, and still the storm raged on. The original scheduled trip to Nineveh seemed difficult, but this one to Tarsus was quickly becoming something more than a Sunday afternoon float trip. Verse 7, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and guess what? Fell on Jonah. These pagan sailors had correctly, but unknowingly opened up a godly principle, but had come to a wrong conclusion. A sudden storm. Lot fell on Jonah. He must have done something terribly wrong. How could this God of Jonah possibly be behind all of this? In John 9, we find Jesus and his disciples, a blind man, seeing a blind man who had been that way since birth. The disciples asked a religiously good question. A rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus' response, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Ironically, the sailor's question about responsibility may have been apropos, but still completely misunderstood. As in the situation with Jesus and the disciples, the ultimate answer was still the same, that the, that the work of God might be displayed. This obviously begged a few other pertinent questions for the sailors. Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? Now we're getting up close and personal. Unfortunately, sometimes in your and my testimonies, in our local community, we try to be a bit evasive. When confronted about our faith, we often find it easier to say that we attend a certain church rather than say we love the Lord. This was not true for Jonah. When questioned by the sailors, he immediately says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heavens, who made the sea and the land. Ah, the God who made the sea and the land. That got their attention. Having just prayed to their own multiple gods, including some specialists who only specifically dealt with water, with absolutely no results, just maybe this God of Israel had some possibilities. Even though... They knew that he was running away from the Lord. They asked him, what have you done? What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? 
Jonah's immediate response, according to chapter 2.12, says, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon us. One would think that a welcome response, that was a welcome response for the sailors. What a relief. It took any responsibility off them and in some ways even cleared their own multiple gods. But instead it caused great turmoil for them. And they renewed their human efforts to row to land simply to avoid throwing Joan overboard. That sounded very much like first degree murder. With the storm still raging, they found themselves on the leeward side. As they got closer to shore, this meant that the storm could easily slam them into the rocks. Jonah had basically told them to hand me over to my God. In their religious culture, correct procedure in the service of their gods was essential. Now that it was obvious that Yahweh said was who he said he was, and had basically saved them from the storm, they not only had to deal with Jonah's God, Yahweh, but they had to do it very, very correctly. Historically, this seems very similar to how Pontius Pilate handled the trial of Jesus. He washed his hands politically, even though it was their hearts that really needed deep clean. Even though the sailors reported reportedly said greatly feared the, they greatly feared the Lord, offered a sacrifice, and made vows to him. Scripture never lists what their vows were or the number or size of their sacrifices. So now we have a quiet sea and a stormy Jonah and a God who's still in control of him, the sailors, the sea, and a big sea monster. Nowhere does it say that the fish was a special creation just for this purpose or even that this was a miracle. Miracles are certainly far more than a mighty God responding to a man's sinful need. We simply know that God ensured that the fish or the sea monster was there at exactly the right time. Not surprisingly, immediately after being swallowed by the sea monster, we read, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Ah, smart move. Even I could have thought of that. But I would have made a desperate prayer for deliverance. Instead, it was a prayer of thanksgiving. Simply thankful that he hadn't drowned. Chapter 2 reads, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help and you listened to my cry. Current swirled around me. Waves and breakers swept over me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Yes, he recognized that he was real close to dying. Except, verse 7 says, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. It's amazing what situations God uses to get us to a kneeling position of genuine confession. And then the God of creation just happens to have a sea monster at his disposal. Verse 9 continues, But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Once Jonah comes to that near-death scene in a watery grave with repentance, God has a sea monster deposit the prophet on dry land, presumably on the coast of Canaan after a three-day return. After all that emotional and physical activity for Jonah, it might seem like God was finished teaching Jonah who he was. Not so. 
God was just getting started. So in chapter 3, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the city, great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Seems like something that Jonah had heard before. Actually, that's something that God himself had said and done elsewhere. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Later on, when God wanted Zerubbabel, and we'll do that in a few weeks, to rebuild the temple after the exile, we read in Haggai 2.20, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time. Just after Abraham had obediently offered the sacrifice his son to offer his son Isaac, we read in Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. And the word of the Lord came to Al 4,000 times. Either he really wanted me to hear it, or maybe I was just not listening, or even outright disobedience. If we have trouble with hearing and listening, we can go back to J.D.'s last three, four weeks sermons in Luke. That was the intended part, I believe, or at least that's the part I heard. But because of God's great love for me and us, he does come back a second time, and a third, and a fourth. So what was it that God said to Jonah the second time around? Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. But there were some noted differences from the first time he came to Jonah. First time, God gave the command and then his reason why. This time, God didn't even repeat the reason for the proclamation. He only issued the command. Also, this time, Jonah's response was one of obedience rather than heading 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That sounds a bit ominous. 40 is often a number of testing in the Bible. In Genesis 7, during the flood, we read of the rains continuing for 40 days in Noah's time. Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai. Twelve spies searched out Canaan for 40 days. Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus was tempted for 40 days. This was not simply an idle threat. It was a command from Yahweh was being given with full obedience expected. They believed God and obeyed. Chapter 3, 5, we read, The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the last, least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. The king decreed, Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Where did that thought come from? Did this Jehovah God have a reputation of being both a God of justice and a God of mercy? That he would relent? That was the same consideration that the sailors had in chapter 1 when they said to Jonah, get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. 
We'll also see in chapter 4 that unfortunately it was a far cry from what Jonah desired for them. Opposed to his God, he only wanted the most severe punishment for them, not mercy. Obviously, the Ninevites repented. Chapter 3.10, when God saw that what they did and how they returned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But neither did Jonah receive total judgment. Instead, mercy. In actuality, that's been our story. As we started, there's no, not simply a story about a whale. It's a real-life journaling of God's merciful dealing with us. Give thanks. As is true with the Ninevites, how many times does the word of the Lord need to come to us before we sincerely repent? If the conversion and repentance of the Ninevites was genuine, why did the Assyrians continue their historical violence? About 35 years later, in 722 B.C., they completely destroyed the northern kingdom. Maybe it was the next generation that reverted to the Assyrians' typical violence. God's own chosen people were a prime example of that. When we were looking at the book of Judges a couple of months ago, we read in chapter 2, People served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Well, I'd like to stop there and leave well enough alone. But unfortunately, verse 7 continues, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what, nor what he had done for Israel. Do any of us dare to look closely at our own families? Go back one generation or forward one or two generations and remain critical? Maybe that will help us in seeing that this is more than a story about a whale. What have we seen just about the sovereignty of God through the lives of his creation? Jonah was given the command. Jonah disobeyed and tried to run away. A rebellious prophet thrown overboard. Gentile sailors repent. At just the right time, God sent a sea monster. Jonah gives thanks and repents. Yahweh comes to a prophet a second time. Jonah re- proclaimed repent. Nineveh believed God and repented. Mission accomplished. So everyone lived happily ever after. Oops. Jonah has a hissy fit. Chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's what I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Really? We got a God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love and relents from sending calamity? Seriously, I've seen worse. As a contemporary of Amos and Hosea, Jonah knew that Assyria would be the very ones that God would send to punish and destroy the northern tribes. This attitude and anger of Jonah was very much like that of the nation of Israel, who also had a complete lack of concern for the graciousness and compassion of God. Jonah desperately pleaded to be delivered from his own calamity, 
but didn't want the Ninevites to be rescued from theirs. In actuality, the Ninevites were more ready to accept God's grace than Jonah was. As an obvious object of God's compassion, Jonah had absolutely no compassion for the people of Nineveh, the very ones he was originally commanded to warn of God's impending judgment. So much so that he even prayed, uh, Now, O oh Lord, uh, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Not much earlier he had prayed to live. Now he prays to die. Was he embarrassed that his threat, which was actually God's message of warning, was not carried out and God relented? Was he possibly thinking that God had thrown him under the bus? Or wasn't even his warning to the Ninevites? It was God's. He was simply the prophet commanded to deliver it. Was he possibly beginning to see that God was genuinely concerned about the city and he as a prophet was not? Whatever the reason, Jonah had lost all reason for living and came to an unjustified, irrational, sinful decision. But God, being the gentle, merciful God of second chances, repeats what he did with Job after Job's endless discourses with, with so-called, Job's so-called friends. God has asked a series of hard rhetorical questions, which really did not answer any of Job's initial questions, but did eventually help Job come to a proper perspective. In Job 40, he says, Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? put my hand over my mouth. Here in Jonah, we find God again asking a fair question. Have you any right to be angry? What a kind God we have. He's willing to actually carry on a conversation with sinful man with repentance and confession and forgiveness as the desired outcome. In chapter 4, we see such a beautiful demonstration of God's extreme, extreme compassion and gentleness and discussion and give and take with such sinful man. It's embarrassing to see what an extent God actually goes to in order to save such dastardly people like the Ninevites and the Israelites and Jonah and me. As we find in verse 5, Jonah went out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade and waited to see what God what would happen to the city. Based on what he had said before, we have a pretty good idea what his hopes were for the city. God sick him. And again, we find this kind of God even going further. Verse 6 reads, Then the Lord provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. We all catch on to that. If it's about me and my comfort, then I'm all for it. I'm happy. But life isn't always about me. As some of us have already painfully learned a time or two or three. Twelve hours later we read, But at dawn the next day God provided a worm that chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And once again, when things changed, Jonah said he wanted to die saying it would be better for me to, to die than to live. Apparently dying was his answer to trouble. 
First the prophet ran away, then he got in a pinch, but pleaded for life, then got angry at God for relenting with Nineveh. So he changed his mind and said he wanted to die. Why would God even consider dealing with him further? Yes, God did have a history of dealing up, up close and personal with his people. Jacob limped the rest of his life due to an all-night wrestling match with God. He came in second, incidentally. Job had opportunity to have an intimate question-answer period with God. And here again, we find God holding back on what he could have done in Jonah's life, but actually takes the time and effort to seriously ask Jonah if he thought he had the right to be angry. Instead of honoring God with an answer, he again pretends to believe that he can actually get out of God's sight and presence and thus avoid an answer. Chapter 4, verse 5, we read that Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city that he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Just maybe he could sit there in his own self-made shelter with a good view of the city and watch it go up in smoke. Sinful, wishful thinking. How quickly he forgot or maybe he never actually realized that the same God who was holding back on the judgment of the Ninevites had done the very same thing for him. Not only did God not punish the prophet for not acting like a prophet, but he continues to demonstrate Jonah's unearned mercy. He actually added comfort to Jonah's shelter by sending a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Way back in Genesis 22, we become acquainted with one of God's names, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. There we see Abraham up on Mount Moriah in the process of obediently offering up his son Isaac. At that very moment, a ram was caught in the thicket and used as a substitute offering. God, in verse 6, we watch God, the provider, again, bringing a vine shade to Jonah from the sun for his personal comfort. I wonder if it ever occurred to Jonah that his own personal efforts at building the shelter just didn't match up anywhere to what God had done, suggesting don't ever play one-upmanship with God. Apparently, it still was not coming in clear what God was really about in this encounter as we read in verse 6, simply that Jonah was very happy about the vine, or might we say, completely oblivious. Once again, Jehovah Jireh continues his attempt at helping Jonah come to an understanding of the contrast between his own personal desire for creature comfort and then of his need for salvation. So God provides first a worm, which ate the vine, and then a scorching east wind, so that Jonah grew faint. The scorching wind was called a Sirocco, which was a weathered scenario, weather scenario that caused the temperature to stay at least 20 degrees higher than the already hot temperatures, along with an extremely low humidity. Its obvious effects were that everything dried up, including Jonah's self-made shelter. Yes, a severe time of discomfort. First, sadly sitting there watching Nineveh's repentance, and now the loss of shade from the vine. So much pain that again in verse 8, he wanted to die. A desire to die seemed to be his go-to modus operandi. 
albeit not very effective, especially since God had other plans for him. Interesting that in chapter 1, this Jehovah Jireh had provided a worm, a storm, and a large fish. Now he provided a hot wind and a measly worm, all with the same end results in mind. As much as the prophet was trying to avoid God by running and even wishing to die and certainly avoid any further personal accountability, this persistent, merciful God once again comes with another question. Actually, the same question, but this was a, with a bit of a twist. Chapter 4, 9 says, But God said to Noah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? God had used Jonah earlier, had asked Jonah earlier if he had the right to be angry. This time he added about the vine. Obviously, God was wanting Jonah to see the contrast between his sparing Nineveh and his destroying the vine. Sadly, there was a major difference between Jonah's lack of concern for the spiritual welfare of the Ninevites and his concern for his own personal physical welfare. Again, a self-centered prophet reaffirmed, I'm angry enough to die. The book of Jonah ends with God speaking, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from the left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Although there are a couple of different views as to what that 120,000 number meant, the most pervasive one believes that the city was populated with 120,000 adults who were undisciplined and undiscerning as children regarding their spiritual condition with God. Regarding the cattle, it may be just another indication of the creator who had created all the animals and had just referenced a great fish as well as a worm. Is there anything in the world that God is not sovereign over? That should have answered any questions that Jonah may have had. That's the storyline of Jonah. Now, what's the significance? As we've said a number of times, this is not a book about a whale or a storm or a worm. It is a true historical revelation of a God who cares for and died for sinners. Yes, Jews, but also Gentiles, including sailors and Ninevites, and you and me. But only on the condition that we repent. In Matthew 12, we find religious leaders not asking, but demanding more miracles of Jesus. His response to them in verse 38 was, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the man, son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now, one greater than Jonah is here. The Hebrew prophet initially attempted to run away from God. God's chosen people, the Jewish nation, rebelled. The heathen sailors and Ninevites repented. Way back in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, we see God's plan to make you into a great nation and bless you so that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Timothy's instructions for the church was 
for them that prayers and intercessions be made for everyone because it pleases our God and Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In Acts 1, we see the progression of witnesses going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and the ends of the earth. This merciful God again demonstrates to the book of Jonah his plan of salvation, both to the Jew and to the Gentile. And aren't we grateful? You're dismissed for 15 minutes and then we get to worship.